At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Welcome, everybody, to Finding Hermes. I hope you're ready to walk through some doors with the God of the mind, lay down your cards, and become transparent to the transcendent. As both Joseph Campbell and Mary Magdalene said, uh, specifically Dialogue with the Savior. And with us, we are very excited to have back Steve Seven to discuss a whole bunch of uh, psycho-spiritual topics. Steve, how are you? I'm fine, thanks, Miguel. How are you? Great and great to have you back. And uh, well, so how have you been, Steve? It's been a few years. We did our interview on Jungian archetypes and we covered uh, a lot of fascinating, engaging topics for the listener and the viewer. I would say check out our past interview with them. But uh, how have you been through the pandemic or the lockdowns or whatever different uh, people want to call it. Uh, what have you learned and how have you changed and where have you pivoted to? Well, it's a big question. But <laughs> <laughs> well, these are big times, apocalyptical times as we talk, you know, yeah, a absolutely. lot of unveiling. <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot of unveiling. Um, and um, I mean, we see often this, this phrase, the great awakening. Um, and I mean, I put it this way. I'm someone that watched September the 11th live uh, and before I talked to anyone, knew well that's a controlled demolition, you know. Uh, so I mean, I've been pretty much, you know, I mean that was what twenty years ago, um, and even then I was pretty long in the tooth about the fact that you know there are a small group of very very wealthy people controlling events all over the world, uh, and have been for a long time. Uh, and I knew that September the eleventh immediately. I knew that was part of it. But I do have to say that um, when the COVID thing hit uh, at the beginning of last year, although I recognized straight away this is just another manipulation, subsequent to uh, it unfolding, you know, with Fauci and, and the Wuhan lab and all the connections of people like Soros and Gates and 
all the other names that we heard of a lot. Um, a lot of uh, the agenda uh, has become much, much clearer to me. Um, for example, I'll give you a couple of examples. I noticed years ago, more than 10 years ago, that there seems to be a specific agenda destroying science uh, and manipulating the direction that science is going. Um, for example, in that particular example, you know, illustration, um, that in psychology, uh, and especially in the social sciences, um, it is almost a taboo subject to say that we are born with any inherent um, drives or instincts, um, and mm -hmm. most particularly the idea uh, that we have an inherent understanding of ourself, um, which is completely false. Uh, and I've talked about this a lot. Um, and anyway, there are many, many aspects of science and popular thinking like the New Age movement that I just thought were random uh, examples of just false thinking that happened to be permeating our culture at the moment. And now I see that there's actually uh, a very specific agenda behind all of these things and they connect um, together because, of course, if you say that we uh, aren't born with any idea of the self, um, the next step is that we have nothing within us and that as is taught totally universally in Germany, um, we are only products of our environment. That's it. We have no other chance of any authenticity beyond that. And once that is taught universally at universities in every field, it doesn't take long before that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And of course that's uh, soul destruction, isn't it? As soon as you have a population raised up to think that there is nothing inherent in them, that they can only be a product of their culture, and then they believe that and take that on board, what chance do they have of finding their authentic self? They don't even believe they have one. You understand? Uh, and, of course, that's the direction that the, the world has been driven for decades, you know, probably more than 100 years at least. Uh, and science has been hijacked um, to this end. There are many, many examples, other examples that fit in with the same agenda uh, that I had noticed. Oh, look at that. Oh, how do they believe that? All these sorts of things, you know. And it's really crystallized for me now that this Agenda 21, this, this great reset that all of this pandemic is about, uh, has been, has been uh, planned for generations. And yeah, I mean, they want to even convince us that we don't even have consciousness. There are some scientists, which is ludicrous. Okay, if we're having subjectivity, we have to have a conscious, but they're even going that far. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, of course, there have been uh, many uh, academics, uh, not so many today, uh, but over the, the last hundred years, there have been many academics, for example, Maslow and the humanists in psychology, uh, who have a completely different understanding and a much more accurate understanding as far as the evidence goes. Right? Um, right. And yet they are just periphery. They're pushed over there, you know. If you go to which something which I've known, you know, for, for decades myself, uh, if you go to what is taught as psychology in the formal uh, institutions, in the universities, uh, and the vast majority of people who are working as 
psychologists, particularly for governments and psychiatric hospitals and things like that. They are all trained under experimental psychology, which uh, has nothing to do with the soul and has everything to do with pushing pharmaceuticals. You know, if you go to um, a, a psychiatric hospital, there's not even any lip service paid to trying to help these people, right? Um, all it is about is giving them medications. You arrive at a psychiatric institute, first thing they do is give you a handful of pills and say, take those. In Germany, the psychiatric hospitals are in palaces, old palaces, right? So these people are living, the, the psychiatric patients who are drugged up, you know, from the moment they arrive, they're living in the crime real estate in Germany. They're living in the old palaces all over the country. I live in a small town called Hoim, and we have a what's called a Schloss. A Schloss, the German word Schloss means lock, uh, but it's, uh, it's like you have a Borg as a castle, and a Schloss is like a fortified palace. Uh, and in Schloss Hoim, for many generations, it's been the home um, of handic mentally handicapped people. Uh, you're talking about something, if it was rented out, you would probably be making, I don't know, a, a wild guess, you'd probably be making 10 or 20,000 euros a month uh, in rent. Mm. Uh, and that is a testimony to how much those people are worth to the pharmaceutical industry, where each one of them, each one of the patients in the Schloss will be taking at least 10 tablets every day, possibly up to 30 tablets every day. Uh, and the average cost of those tablets will be anything from 50 to 200 euros per tablet. That's the sort of money. You know, the fact that they are living in prime real estate alone is a testament to how much money is being generated just by keeping them on drugs rather than trying to actually give them some therapy and help them. And there are many case studies in the history of psychology and the literature where people with very severe psychoses and schizophrenia um, have been cured uh, to the point of not needing drugs. Um, <clears throat> but that's not even an issue these days. That, that's not even considered these days. Generally, they'll say that these people are born with chemical imbalance in their brain and they need 20 drugs, 20 pills every day. To and it's, uh, it's uh, taxpayers who pay for these drugs to give to the population. It's a, a vicious yeah. cycle of basically dumbing down, not even dumbing down, but putting people in a haze and uh, exactly. numbing the population. Because, yeah, you can walk in, and I'm sure it's the same in Germany, and oh, I'm really depressed. And instead of seeing why you're depressed, uh, just popping a pill. And, well, you create a whole cottage industry of zombies. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, there are many things. I've been reading stuff lately about fluoride in the water, and I come from New Zealand, where since I was a child and before that, but, you know, my whole life in New Zealand, um, there was fluoride being pumped, still today, fluoride being pumped in the water, and I've heard, you know, that that's actually affecting people's minds, that they can't critically think, uh, they become more passive, things like this. I mean, this is all deliberate. This is, the, you know, I used to think that they, they allowed all the poisons in the supermarket foods 
and you know built poisons into the water because they didn't want people living old enough to collect the pension. Right? That's what I thought for many years because it's very obvious that the governments are murdering us slowly. That that's one of the most obvious things about governments, in fact. And I just thought, well, they just want to use us in their factories or whatever we do until we're 60 or 70 or whatever the retirement age is, and then they just want us to die. But, of course, the, the side effects, the long-term side effects um, of fluoride, for example, and many other drugs, um, heavy metals and stuff like that, is that you, it takes away your ability for critical thinking. So this is, you would say, it's more than just greed, Steve. I mean... The profit for pharmaceuticals is incredible. Uh, when businesses want to put make more profit, they will bribe scientists to look the other way or give them the studies. And in the United States, there is a long history of corrupt science from asbestos to tobacco to the sugar company. I mean, over and over, it's... Uh, it's incredible. I was reading a story, even doing prohibition, the government was actually poisoning alcohol so that some people would die and then they would learn, the rest of the population would learn their lesson. And in New York, it killed like 700 people. So my point is the government and business over because of greed and profit has done incredible damage on the population. But you're seeing this even as a larger issue, an issue of eugenics and population control. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, just while you've touched on prohibition, okay, well, this is a slight aside here. All right. Now, do you or do we seriously think that a few conservative Christians lobbied the U.S. government strongly enough you know, Puritans or whatever, right, to say, right. hey, we're going to outlaw alcohol. Do you know what the agenda was with prohibition? I'll tell you just to make a long story short. Yeah, yeah. All right, here we go. <clears throat> this ties straight in with uh, pharmaceuticals because uh, when you look at the different pharmaceutical companies and you look at the different, like, Dulux paints, for example, right, and you see who owns that company, who owns that company, who owns that company. No. Right? The paint companies like Dulux are owned by pharmaceutical companies, and those companies are owned by oil companies. Okay. They're all connected. All right. Now, what happened was that during the 1920s, okay, the oil um, industry was surging ahead. Okay. Now, we all know about Ford who wanted to run uh, cars on um, methanol created from hemp. No. And that's why, that's why marijuana became illegal, right? That's a story on its own. Well, there were also people that wanted to run cars on alcohol, mm. right? And so in the same way that they made hemp or marijuana illegal, you know, under the auspices that it's a drug, a dangerous drug. No. So we've got to stop forward growing hemp. How do we do that? Oh, I know. Let's say marijuana is a bad drug and we'll make it illegal. Because when America first started out as a colony, it was compulsory to grow to put part of your land. If you were a farmer, you had a 1,000 acres, right? You had to put 10% into growing hemp for the rows no. of the ships, Right. Then they took away, slowly they took away all the tax incentives and things like that, 
but that didn't stop people like Ford going, oh, no, I'm, you know, the government will come to its senses, the government, you know, and so he carried on growing hemp. And so to stop Ford growing hemp, they made marijuana illegal. And exactly the same thing happened with alcohol. They didn't want competition from people making alcohol brand cars, right, because there were still choices. I mean, I've seen photos recently of electric cars from 1910. Right, mm -hmm. so there yeah. were all different alternative things, and it just got pushed and pushed and pushed into oil and petrol to run cars. And the prohibition era was got nothing to do with Puritans hijacking the government, and you, you know, we're going to have a, a nation of teetotalers. It was all to do with by making alcohol production illegal in general. It meant that people who wanted to produce alcohol to run cars had a lot of problems and it became too difficult for them, right? You talk about greed, okay? And, I mean, you know, we hear all the time, it's been rubbed in our face recently since this pandemic that people like Gates and Bezos uh, and these computer nerds uh, are making 50% more than they normally do and they've gone from... You know, I don't know, thirty billion to a hundred billion or something in twelve months. Right. Or these sort of figures. That's peanuts. That's peanuts. The richest people in the world, a hundred billion is nothing. It's not even the interest on their on their pocket money for the day. I'm telling you, man. The richest people in this world finance the wars completely, both sides, every country that's going to war are being financed by the richest people in this world. And that's pocket money. I mean, you know, every country, in the, almost every country in the world has a multi-trillion dollar debt, right? Yeah. Multi-trillion dollar debt. That's not just owed to some nebulous institution like the IMF or something. That's real money that's owed to actual people. And even that money is just, they don't need that money, right? The countries that owe, like, you know, the United States, New Zealand, Australia, Germany, every almost every country, right, has got a debt like that, that they have almost deliberately been piling up, piling up, piling up since yeah. the oil crisis, okay, in the 70s, right? They can't even keep up with the interest payments on these debts, right? And I always thought... First of all, what do these people want all that money for? <laughs> you know, this is my great awakening, if you like, you know, because I've, I've known about this for years. I remember 16 at school, you know, at high school, learning about the New Zealand debt, which was, I don't know, probably not even quite a billion dollars then. It would be a trillion by now probably, no. you know. Uh, and, you know, I just sort of – so I've known about this debt that all these countries have got. I've known about that for decades. I'm 58 now, so that's more than 40 years ago I learned about it, and I've learned more and more about it. A friend of mine worked for the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, which is like the Federal Reserve of New Zealand, and he was quite high up, and he said, oh, and I said, what about paying off the debt? And he said, you're joking. We can't pay off the debt. That's part of the whole thing. That's part of the system. There's all sorts of, I can't remember the exact details, but all sorts of barometers that come out of the debt and things like this, you know, that actually maintain some sort of static sort of, you know, 
something necessary for global economics, you know. And anyway, I always thought, first of all, what do they want all this money for? There's only so much money you can take. And secondly, when are they going to call that debt in? You know, when are they going to, you know, I mean, because it works out at, you know, in those days when I was at school, it was tens of thousands of dollars per head, per person when I was at school. And it would be hundreds of thousands of dollars now per person, if not millions per person, right? Now, by the sort of bigger laws of body corporate, right, when your country owes that kind of money, the people that that debt is owed to, they own the people because the people are like uh, products, if you like, or goods, goods and services of that country. And this is the way. Because of this huge amount of money, I mean, you you know, $100 billion that Gates owes, or has, sorry, owns, right? That's nothing to these people who you never hear about. You never hear about it. Well, you do, but not on the front page of the mainstream media sort of thing. They've got un literally uncountable, uncountable amounts of trillions and trillions of dollars, you know, and they own us. They literally own us. So, I mean, if they want to buy off the medical profession as such, which I've seen happening slowly for decades myself, personally, in different stupid ideas that are being pushed through science, so-called science, uh, that have got no real evidential basis, and it just the people that are pushing them become, you know, they've got 20 honorary doctorates, or, you know, this silly idea, like, what's her name? Uh, I can't remember. She was doing that, um, creating memories, Loftus. Mm -hmm. I can't remember her first name, mm -hmm. Loftus. This psychologist that came out of nowhere uh, and all of a sudden became, you know, the most highly praised psychologist in the world by saying, we don't have memories. All our memories are plastic and they are put into us which is completely false. And her, her statistic was so small. Twenty, her, her first research sample were 12 people, and she got a 25% success rate in creating Elizabeth, Elizabeth Loftus. She got a 25% success rate in creating a false memory with these people under the perfect suggestible conditions. And then she did 24 uh, of her own students Right, so it was under the perfect suggestible right. con conditions, and she got the same twenty-five percent. And from that, she extrapolated that to say that all of our memories are plastic and have been put into us. And then after that, you know, she got a doctorate in law and made a huge killing, heaps of money, going around America uh, and overturning hundreds of uh, historic uh, child abuse cases by just walking in there and saying, I'm the most celebrated psychologist in the world at the moment. I'm getting all sorts of uh, honorary doctorates, including a doctorate of law, uh, and uh, it's impossible for someone to recover a, a, a memory, a childhood memory. That memory has been planted in them by the, somebody, you know, by a psychologist or something. Um, and at the beginning of her doing this, she was overturning hundreds of cases. Fortunately, uh, some onto it psychologists actually took up the baton for psychology and fought her, um, and the war is still going on. And now there is a record of subsequent to her action 
they started uh, monitoring and recording actual legal cases where recovered memories, okay, have proven uh, a guilty party in a historic uh, child abuse case. In other words, you know, these have been proven in court, right? right? Uh, you know, forget about all the thousands or tens of thousands of cases in the literature um, of psychology where under hypnosis uh, patients have, you know, recovered memories from their childhood and gained some sort of, uh, you know, health from that, okay? These are examples that have come from law courts, and there are hundreds of them um, over quite a short period of time that have proven that people can, in fact, uh, recover memories successfully, and they are accurate, true memories, uh, which she made a war against that whole concept. Um, you know, and of course, this ties into, you know, the whole sort of fact that I forget the exact number, but it's something like three or four hundred thousand children go missing every year oh in America alone, every year. Right? Okay. And there is and has been for the whole history of psychology an agenda in the elite to completely cover over child abuse and things like this. Um, it's a huge story. Um, but the point that I uh, sort of am waffling on, um, you know, to, to, to illustrate a particular point, is that I have seen science being hijacked for a particular agenda for decades with all sorts of false ideas like this Elizabeth Loftus. And her. She now actually is being funded to millions of dollars a year to research how to create false memories. And of course, this is, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> this is all about how, for example, September the 11th uh, was, um, you know, in The Simpsons, um, and there were uh, there was some movie that was made just before September the 11th happened. Uh, mm -hmm. September the 11th happened first to create to implant a memory of September the 11th in people to make people more readily accept it in the mainstream narrative of what happened. The same thing happened at the 2012 Olympics where the opening ceremony was a pandemic, right? And no, that was no, actually no, no. for SARS. They try, what they're doing now with this COVID, they tried that in 2012 with SARS. And fortunately, Rainer Fulmuch, which who is a, a, a German lawyer, stopped them. And he is at the moment working uh, with many other lawyers and doctors, medical professionals, whistleblowers, um, working on a Nuremberg case to stop the crimes against humanity that are being perpetrated at the moment. Of course, you won't hear about this in the mainstream media. But Steve, yeah, definitely is, uh, as you've proven and as we've seen, there is an issue. Uh, I guess, I mean, I have like uh, friends in Mexico and I always ask them, you know, and I lived in Mexico, I ask them, well, what's the deal with uh, the cartels and the violence and whatever you want to hear, they always laugh and they say, you know, there's no money in operations. Uh, the, the drug war is and the cartels are being funded by money from across the board in the United States. So like you said, there's, there's a lot of money being moving around. I think it's, uh, like you said, they don't need the money. I think this is power for the sake of power. This is wanting to be godlike. 
uh, Tower of Babel, you can name it. And I think uh, something I've talked so much in this show, well, not on this show, but on Aeon Byte, where we focus more on, you know, uh, wickedness in high places and all that good stuff. But uh, the question is too. Well, the first question I want to get to uh, the self and the soul and basically the solution. What can we do as people for it? But have you noticed, too, that we also live in very polarized, divide and conquer times? I mean, uh, when I hear somebody giving me their opinion, you know, I interview them on the show and they'll say, well, you know, um, there's a virus. I got the shot. I wear a mask. My my reaction is, okay, you made a decision. If I hear another guest said, no, I'm not going to wear a mask and I'm not going to take the jab, blah, blah, blah. I said, well, that's your decision. You made, You came to a conclusion. But we live in these times where an opinion seems to be some sort of existentialist threat to reality and uh have you noticed this uh, about there in the, in the in the media and social media and all that there's it's very little room for dialogue it seems yeah it's hard not to notice it actually um <clears throat> i mean i think you you summed it up with divide and conquer um yeah i mean it's hard not to notice it it's exceptionally polarized. Um, another thing I've noticed, which I think is hand in hand with this, is um, there are many channels on YouTube uh, where people are teaching um, how to make explosives and weapons and things like this. And the whole uh, concept of zombie apocalypse uh, is a catchphrase that is taken now as a given. In other words, there seems to be a lot of uh, social engineering towards uh, a, a period of anarchy uh, and, um, you know, um, sort of riotous uh, upheaval and uh, watch out for the zombie apocalypse and arm yourself with these weapons, um, you know, for a period uh, yeah, I think that we're being driven into a sort of a, a an international civil war, if you like. Um, and the polarization lines are sort of, you know, the us and them, if you like. Um, you know, in America, it's Republican, Democrat, uh, or you could just even paint it as, you know, people who see through the propaganda of the pandemic uh, and people that think that, because, of course, you see, that, you know, as far as this pandemic goes, um, if you don't want to take the jab, if you don't want to wear a mask, uh, if you're trying to speak out against it, I mean, in Germany, you're labeled as a Nazi, which is completely crazy, of course, because we're the ones that are trying to stand up against Nazism. Um, <clears throat> you know what I mean? And it's like, we, we, you know, it's exactly the same, exactly the same situation when, um, when Hitler was in power and, you know, he fueled this hatred for the Jewish people uh, and the Holocaust happened, you know, which uh, a lot of the Holocaust was just simply on the streets and in the synagogues, um, you know, it wasn't so much uh, something that was planned and executed solely by the Nazis. It was something that was part of just the everyday kind of um, 
accept like like people are given permission to hate. Mm. Uh, that's what happened in, in, in you know against Jews in Europe in um, and it wasn't just Germany uh, in the 1930s, um, and that's happening again now. Um, you see it uh, like Trump, you know, this Trump disparagement or Trump derangement syndrome or whatever it's called, you know, which was also aimed at Reagan. It was aimed at Thatcher. You know, it's like these people become scapegoats for all the ills of capitalism, and there are plenty of ills in capitalism. Uh, and then all of a sudden it's like, you know, if anyone wants to talk about true liberalism, right, which is leave the government out of our lives, okay, like Ron Paul, for example, right? all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're, you're tarred with this brush that you're a capitalist, that you're kind of, you know, a Trump supporter or something like that, or Reagan, you know, earlier, you know. Um, and people are given permission to hate, right? They're actually encouraged to hate by the media. And that's kind of the line that the media, the demarcation that the media have created is the people that want, you know, state intervention in their lives, right? And that's the rhetoric, you know? That's the rhetoric that you hear so often, you know? And the people that want less government intervention in our lives and the worst part about it, the most ignorant aspect of the whole sort of anti-kind of capitalist, so-called capitalist thing, is that the people that are, are fighting for more state intervention, that's where all of the corruption is. You know, when you want to talk about uh, crony capitalism, right, where, uh, you know, sort of all, all, the, all the funding is um, given to to, you know, just the top executives of the firm and, 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 you know, the workers get nothing. Or where, you know, like, for example, A.H. Robbins with Delcon Shield, where, you know, executives uh, falsified test research data uh, and dumped these dangerous products onto the market. Hundreds of thousands of American women were, you know, suffered pelvic inflammatory diseases. That's violent crime on a huge scale. Right, without government being involved in that, they would not have got away with it. After, after it came out, there were so many cases that the Delcon Shield, the dangers of the Delcon Shield, couldn't be hidden anymore. The American government, you know, and it was FDA approved and all of the rest of it. Right, the government bought all of the Delcon Shields off AH Robbins and shipped them onto the third world. Right where millions of, because of lower levels of hygiene and stuff like that, um, millions of third world women die, right? So all these people that are raving about how we need more government intervention to stop this evil crony capitalism, it's the government intervention that is supporting this crony capitalism and things like, you know, corrupt medical or pharma firms who are falsifying test research, you know, to release dangerous products. That's actually the government helping them do that. Well, that's a classic what? definition you know, of fascism. I don't know if I'm making myself clear about it, but, you know, laissez-faire, you know, laissez-faire is like leave the government out. Leave the government out of our lives, you know. 
You see what I mean? And of course now that's been that's been slandered and branded like Ron Paul. I mean, how could anyone disrespect Ron Paul? You know, who gets up when he's you know trying to run for office? You know, trying to win the ticket to run for the Republicans in, in 2012. Gets up in the Senate and says, "Look." We're borrowing money for these people to fight these people, to protect these people. You know what I mean? And it's just revealing the whole scam of the whole thing, you know? I mean, and, you know, under the auspices, under the, the umbrella of liberalism, true, true proper, not the, the people who call themselves liberals and not neoliberal that they've branded, they've tarred, the sort of so-called Trumpism and all these free market ideas and stuff like that, you know? You see what I mean? Uh, and you can see the direction that it's going. You can see where they're pushing us into, you know, the people that want free market, the people that want laissez-faire, the people that don't want the government interfering in our lives. We're the bad guys. We're the so-called Nazis, which is completely ridiculous. We're the Nazis. You know, because we don't want the government in our lives. We're the racists. We're the bigots, you know. And these people, you know, on the other side that want more and more and more government intervention, please, you know, they're, they're the sort of woke kind of, you know, how do you put it, you know, sort of gay-friendly and, and black-friendly. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. And all of these sorts of things, you know. And yet they are the most heinous bigots that have, you know, of all. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah, crazy. I agree with Steve. Uh, yeah, I mean, as I was... As I was about to say, I mean, classic fascism is when business and government unite together for their own interests, not interests of the people. And you don't know where the beast starts and the beast begins. And I think we've been there. But I'd like to talk about some solutions, too. Um, I think a lot of the solution or the starting point is what you talked about at the beginning of the interview, which is the self and the soul. Uh, would you, I mean, I have come to understand as stubborn as I am in my old age, that the most important thing in my life is to find out who I am, who is myself, because once I find who myself is, I find my purpose, my true will. Uh, what do you have to say? How can we find ourselves, or what is the self or the soul? Well, it's a great question, Miguel. Uh, and, um, <clears throat> I think that, Certainly at the moment, a lot of people are really uh, starting to suffer 
with the lockdowns and you know the taking away of their freedoms and stuff like that. Um, and you know, there's been a lot of uh, record of depressions and suicides and things like that as a result. Yeah. Um, I've read some statistics of, of some pretty shocking figures in the rise of suicides around the world at the moment as a direct result of the lockdowns. Um, you know, and these have been trying to, you know, they're trying to say, oh, you yeah, know, people are upset about global warming. Um, <laughs> and this is something that's been going on for as long as psychology has existed as a science that, you know, the psychologists who, who really are trying to be psychologists instead of, you know, sales reps for the drug firms um, have been warning us all the way through uh, that we have a soulless society that um, in 1950s, Rollo May said that the symptoms of our patients, speaking to other psychologists, you know, psychotherapists, the symptoms that we see in our patients today are the spearhead of a greater malaise that will be universally felt by our culture because our culture is so soul-destroying, which it is. It's not just in the last hundred years either. But the idea is for uh, for for one to, to attain mental, you know, uh, stability and, and you know, good place mentally, psychologically, um, is to be autonomous, and that's pretty universal. Um, in, in in the people, the, the psychologists worthy of the name have pretty much universally said that that to work towards your own personal autonomy, that you are the master of your life is the ultimate. And, of course, this is Plato, you know. This is the mystery religions, okay. It probably was much more overt in Christianity until Christianity and the scriptures were hijacked, which was very early on. Yeah. Um, you know, it wasn't just in the fourth century with Constantine and people like that that Christianity was hijacked. Christianity was hijacked uh, very early on. The people who knew Jesus, the historical Jesus, hijacked Christianity. Okay. Um, but anyway, that's a bit of an aside. Um, so the idea is step by step, as much as we can, that we take the reins of our own life. And that we are the master of our destiny. We are the master of, of, of our life, which means, of course, to uh, be self-employed, you know, um, to be as self-sufficient as you can as far as growing your own food and things like that. Okay. Uh, these are the things that bring our soul, you know, and in fact, you know, I've always said, I've always lived in small towns, or pretty much always. There have been periods when I've lived in cities for various reasons, like going to university. But in general, uh, I'm someone that lives in a small town that's close to the bush. Um, and I have a young family at the moment. Uh, we live in a small town in Germany, um, and we will be going off grid soon. Um, by the end of this year, we imagine that we will be living on a couple of hectares at least somewhere uh, in, um, in the wild, if you like, what they say in Germany in the, in, in the wild. Um, uh, 
going off grid and um, being as self-sufficient as we can. You can't be fully self-sufficient in this world the way it is. And you will always need to come up with some money, even if it's just to pay the land tax every year. But there are degrees of how much self-sufficient that you can be. Uh, and I think right now in particular, this is something that I've talked with my family about for a while. And of course, now with the pandemic and the lockdowns and all of the rest that's on the way, um, it's going to be very important to be in a safer situation like that. Uh, again, what is the journey to finding the self? I know you are a proponent of depth psychology, uh, not going in and taking a pill or a quick fix, uh, new age kind of route, but uh, Deb Psychology, the great journey, inward journey of finding your soul, uh, obviously exemplified by, you know, in mythology, God's going underground, exemplified by Jung going down into finding his own soul with Philemon. I mean, is that, it seems that's the road we've discussed Sure. Okay. Well, as far as like going into the labyrinth to meet the Minotaur in the center and things like that, those those images are relating to repressed tragedy and drama um, from our childhood, Always. Right, which is holding us back. Okay, uh, and that's very important aspect in the idea of um, healing your personal emotion and personal subconscious. Okay, because um, if you think about uh, the way I see it, is your soul is is the archetype of your higher self. Okay, it's like an instinct, an evolutionary instinct um, of our higher self. Okay, and it's like a Alka-Seltzer tablet at the bottom of the glass, and then you have the bubbles that are coming up. The surface of the water is the consciousness, our consciousness. Okay, and the bubbles that are coming up uh, from the higher self, Alka-Seltzer tablet. Right, those are the symbols and the different aspects that we hook onto uh, that lead us down and down and down to the Alka-Seltzer of our of our higher self. Right, so to clear that 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 passage from our consciousness to our higher self, we have to heal our personal emotions, our personal unconscious, and these images, many of these images, like the Odyssey, like the trip to the Odyssey with the sirens and things like that. Um, and 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 the whirlwind, you know, um, th these these symbols uh, are pointing to the different monsters that we have inside us, which are repressed trauma and things like that that need healing. Okay, and that's an ongoing process that we're working with our whole life going through. You know, when you have children. Um, it comes very much to the surface. The way that you're handling your own children yeah. will bring up memories for you Oof. about how you were handled by your parents. And that helps you to grasp onto some of these uh, buried contents of our personal unconscious to bring them to the light of consciousness and then to do whatever is necessary to heal these aspects. But sometimes they take over you and you end up acting just as your parents when you promise yourself you would be different. So it's, uh, I think so sometimes it's the other way around. Yeah, well, that's what most people do, of course. You know, <laughs> this is going back to what I said at the beginning, is that as far as psychology as it's taught in the mainstream, 
we have no authentic self, we have no soul, uh, and we can only be a product of our environment. So in other words, it's like the scripture that says that the action of the parents will be a curse for the children for five generations. Uh-huh. Right, okay. But the thing is that that's, that's where you break that curse, right, is to be conscious of these things. And, I mean, you, you slip up. I mean, of course, I slip up with my children too. The most important thing, right, is that you balance it with love, you know, and that you can apologize to your children, you know. So, oh, shit, sorry, I, you know, I shouldn't have done that. Do you know what I mean? Um, that's the most important thing. Right? You can't expect that you're going to do the perfect reaction every time. Right? But you can make a, the best of a bad situation by allowing your children to say, hey, what did you do that for? And not getting all kind of parental about it and say, yeah, no, I made a mistake. You know? And then they can see that you're human. And that brings a lot of healing for your children. You know? But, I mean, a lot of my uh, spiritual experience uh, has come from uh, as I discussed with you the last time we spoke, a long time ago, uh, has come from, you know, the, the mishandling. Uh, is that a word in English, mishandling? Mm-hmm. Abuse. Yeah. Abuse, yeah. Uh, that that um, I was subjected to as a child, you know. So in the end, you know, uh, as long as you're there for your children when they are unpacking them and say, yeah, no, I did do that, I shouldn't have. You know, and allow them to tell you off, sort of thing. You know, then you're helping them unpack their own thing, and you can begin that process with the children. You know, right at the very start, as you're doing it, as you're making mistakes, sort of thing. But as far as what what techniques have you used to help you uh, overcome your very uh, a child of being severely abused, as we talked last time, and finding your soul. I think in our last time you did have sort of a revelatory experience when you were 19, something broke open. But what have you done to, again, find your authentic self, your true purpose, you know, your, your wholeness? Okay, well, at 19, um, I, at that Point, which is a long time ago now for me, it's almost 40 years ago. <laughs> uh, I had the vision for my own life that I'd be a writer, and five years ago I started that. Uh, it's taken me five years, you know, up until a few months ago where I can say, well, I actually got there. You know? I mean, I started writing five years ago, but it's been a long, hard slog to um, make it an income. You know? And this year yeah. is the year where it's snapped together and and I can say, all right, well, I've done it. You know, I got there. Right? Um, but as far as finding my authentic self, I mean, that's part of it. You see, that's a seed that was planted in me right at the very beginning that at age 19, I saw that seed. Right? I saw that. And then I worked towards that for 30 years, 35 years or something like that. I didn't sit down and start my first book until I was over 50. I was older than 50. Okay. And when I was in my 20s and 30s and 40s, I worked towards that knowing that when I was about 50, that I would, that I would you know, arrange my life so that I could sit and write and be a writer. You see what I mean? I did things like I went to university. I was involved with countless 
different forms of religiosity and stuff like that, you see. Um, and working with one's art, whatever their art may be, whether it's writing or painting or sculpting, right? or, uh, I mean, you know, it could be gardening. You know? And there are right. many different um, things like that that one could be involved. It might be working with your hands building toys. Right? Okay. And there are many different things like that that we can uh, use, right, to build our soul because being involved with your art and then being able to, to make a living with something practical. Like since I was 19, I've also known uh, that, you know, I can heal with magnetic healing. But I wouldn't personally, the way I see it, I wouldn't charge for that. That's like trying to charge for your love, mm. if you like, because that's effectively what it is. Right? So when I do that, I don't charge anyone for that. But I don't have a problem with sitting down, writing a book, paying a, pub, a printer to, to print them out, publishing it myself, and then having something to sell. If I was making toys, I wouldn't have a problem with going out, buying some wood or, or chopping down a tree, drying it out, and hacking up some wood and, you know what I mean? And then selling that, you know what I mean? As part of my income that I need to pay the land tax or something or buy some seeds or, do you understand? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So all of these aspects are things that are your soul coming forward. I mean, my partner has a business where um, she's growing different healing herbs, calanchoes and aloes and um, even lavender and stuff like that, and she's making tinctures. Right? And in fact, that's actually um, quite a quite a good, um, you know, a growing a growing small business, a cottage industry, you know, a cottage business, not industry as such. You know what I mean? And that's actually doing quite well. And that's a very, you know, soulful way uh, to make a living. You know, um, uh, and of course, you know, I write about. Um, Things, aspects like this as well in my books, you know, about the psychic garden and things like this, how uh, plants will attract each other, the soil will attract certain plants and uh, for different ingredients, you know, like if the soil's lacking in nitrogen, uh, it will attract lupins to grow there to add nitrogen to the soil magnetically. You know? And I mean, these things, I, I don't have a problem, I'm just, you know, like accepting these things, you know. And, and they're, they're sort of like looking outside the mainstream. You know, because this world is soul destroying. It's, 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 and I think deliberately so. I think deliberately so. They yeah, don't want so. us to have a soul. You know? So we have to look outside the mainstream. Find, I mean, obviously things like healing, you know, finding different, um, different things, uh, different sort of meditations and, um, um, tools, techniques to get within, you know, and unpack these, uh, old memories and trauma and stuff like that. That's very important. And then deal with them, you know, deal with them so that you're healing them and you're able to forgive the people and let go of them and things like that. That's very important. And then as you're doing this process, different things will be coming up, you know. You'll just one day have this idea, for example, uh, that would be a good thing to do, growing plants. I love having plants around me, you know. And then your soul is starting to come out, you know. Your soul is starting to get yeah. nourished, you know. For me, it was kind of a bit of a, 
Yeah, I mean, it's different for everyone, I'm sure. Um, for me, it was kind of a bit of a flash. You know, I'm going to be a writer, you know, and I worked my way up to be able to, I, you know, I've, you know, I've worked on building sites and been a building maintenance contractor and I've owned bookshops and things like that in New Zealand. I used to sell secondhand and antiquarian books and things like that, you know. All in my own head, you know, sort of leading up to the point where I can sit back and um, and write, be a writer full time. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because that's a huge question, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, on this show, on Finding Hermes, sometimes we just, I like to ask techniques, uh, alternative paths so people can test the waters on their own. They don't have to believe me or the guests, but I think we live, we live in a time where the more, more options are better and people are realizing the traditional ways are a little suspicious, as, as we've discussed on the show, and maybe giving alternative paths might lead to... Uh, breakthroughs insights uh, better life better mental health better physical health so that's uh, and you've obviously provided quite a few um, i guess to get as we get towards the end what about fear do you have i mean well thinking of dune and the famous line fear is the mind killer i think these last two years have shown how destructive and paralyzing and eroding fear can be uh what are you some of your techniques against fear or advice for people when they are gripped with fear another good question another big question i mean yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's sort of, you know, it'd be easy to just do some throwaway thing like, well, if you're afraid, then you should do it. Um, for me, I think th th it would be better to talk about techniques of meditation, for example. Uh, one technique uh, in meditation uh, is to bring the light, like the Kabbalistic light of God, you know, the Sephiroths, the, the lightning flash, okay? The lightning flash. <laughs> okay, now, the Kabbalistic frame... Um, I'm sure most of your audience are aware of the sort of the set-offs that come down in that zigzag. So, I mean, the thing is that you can actually just visualize that light coming, you know, from the top of your head to encompass you. You can visualize it as like a force field around you. Okay. Uh, the thing is that as with all meditation techniques, you need to practice it and practice it and practice it until it becomes a Because it can be quite difficult to visualize the light okay but this is something um this is the patronus from harry potter i mean actually jk rowling uh knows a lot about um some depth psychology um and the way that meditations can help us deal with fear uh and the patronus uh i'm sure you're aware of harry potter and the patronus spell that they use right uh you think of a really uh the most positive memory that you have and you feel it, right? You hold on to that feeling, right? Okay. Uh, and then you sit in a particular um, way or you hold your fingers, you know, like hold your finger like this or you know what I mean? You just make some sort of trigger that will automatically bring that feeling to you, right? And then you, you know, picture the light around you and stuff like that. This is training your mind that you're taking on the, the that strong feeling becomes automatically that you can grasp it and have it 
uh, as a defense in any moment, you know. Right. Uh, so, I mean, there are many techniques uh, that we can um, use to, to give us the, the strength, but in the end, uh, I think that having the faith that we have a higher self um, and, in fact, to, to work towards the higher self um, is elevating us above any particular material situation, you know. And different attitudes, just just worldviews, actually help us. I think worldviews um, are something that's downplayed a lot. You know, I think that worldviews are very important. You know, to have a worldview that you have a higher self. You know, uh, to have a worldview that there is justice in the world. Eventually, the truth always comes out. Things like this. I think these are very important things to have a worldview, never to tell a lie. On any situation, right? Ever, even if the Nazis are banging at your door asking if you've got a Jew in the cellar, these sorts of things. I actually did a video on this myself. Um, you know, these are bringing the eternity into our life by holding on to these higher principles and bringing these higher principles into our worldview, into our life. They are elevating us so that we are a better channel. For our higher self, by holding on to archetypal principles, you know, I think that having a correct worldview is more important than spending ten hours a day meditating or something like that. It's like make your life a meditation. Yeah, as they say, life is a prayer, and uh, the good thing about a worldview is you can destroy it and get a new one. It's not part of yourself if you don't want it to do you can create better art or as i say in the show you can write your own gospel and live your own myth it's uh our souls are made of stories as doctor who once said very wisely so <laughs> but i think you've uh, you've been very wise too steve and i've enjoyed having you back on this time on finding hermes but for the audience um could, oh, again i keep repeating that i'll have it flashing on the video it will be on the show notes but for those who are listening this and audio only where can they find out more about your work and your books um, yeah, okay, I'm at www.spiritualinstinctpress.com. And uh, on my website at the moment, I think I've got nine books. I'm going to be publishing five or six in the second half of this year. Um, I've just started a series on magic and sorcery in the early church. I've published the first two volumes of that. Um, and I have books on spiritual alchemy um, as well, which is spiritual alchemy is effectively uh, the symbols of alchemy, like the, the furnace, um, the cauldron, if you like. Uh, that's going through the process of um, dealing with the trauma and stuff like that. And the, the turning lead into gold is a symbol um, for, you know, the transformation of a shipwrecked, sort of spiritually damaged person who goes through the, the process of the refining fires and then like the phoenix that's born from the ashes um, turns into the gold of the spiritually enlightened person over that period of you know the, the refining fire of the cauldron. So that's how I deal with spiritual alchemy and I have books 
um, on Switzerland as well. The books that I will be um, publishing in the second half of the year will be uh, complementary to that spiritual alchemy in advance book uh, called um, The Salamander, Keeper of the Secret Fire. Uh, and there will be more volumes of the Magic and Sorcery and Christianity series. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, you heard it here. Check out Steve's site and uh, a lot of good content there. And Steve, uh, once again, it was great talking to you. And thanks for sharing your insights and uh, ideas on the world, uh, both how bad it is, but at the same time, at the same time, how good it is too. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. And on that note of um, how good it would be, I have to sort of, as a closing statement, if you like, um, I have to say that at the moment, although things do look pretty dark, I think that this is actually, although we are being subjected to the agenda of you know, these rich parasites, uh, you know, um, the cabal, as they're often called. Um, I think that the way that it's been forced upon us with this technocratic great reset and all of these things, I think that there's going to be some positive things come out of it because I have said for many years that we need to move away from industrial technology and get back to nature live much more closely um, and I think that what they are doing is so excessive and so obvious showing us the dangers of industrial technology and this technocratic sort of world that they're creating for us. I think that perhaps not our generation but certainly I think that the next few generations will look with disdain on industrial technology uh, and we will as humans we will move away from it and i think that is the next step forward in our evolution is to move away from the toys that we've been playing with for the last 500 years or so you know uh, and live more simply back to nature you know well said, and I would agree. Well, great. Well, thank you very much, Steve, for uh, coming on Finding Hermes, and uh, we look forward to our next chat. Uh, I'm sure one of the books you'll put out this year or in the near future. Okay, thank you very much, Miguel. I look forward to it as well. Bye-bye. And there you have it. A great, electric, uh, stark but ultimately hopeful chat with Steve Seven. Everything's going to be all right as long as you keep waking up and going through those doors. In our interview, uh, part of it reminded me of when I was younger and I'd be reading the New Testament, the canonical uh, Gospels, or watching a Jesus movie, maybe Zeffirelli's Jesus of Nazareth. And it always struck me that uh, the crowds and the people really loved Jesus. And then they turned on him just like that. Uh, in my youth, I used to think, well, this is kind of fake. It's got to be like a literary device or something. Well, in these days, now I believe it completely because people do turn on you uh, because of what you say. And I'm sure the divide and conquer and constant trauma that people are subjected to today 
probably was happening in those days. I'm sure the Roman Empire and the corrupt Jewish priesthood uh, had the same sort of propaganda and psychological warfare tools on the population. And it's, and it's very unfortunate because, uh, to me, it's just odd how people think that somebody's view today is like an existential threat or something. It's just an opinion. I myself have been accused of, uh, well, holding views or saying things online that could kill people. And, um, no, people are ultimately responsible for their actions. And I guess I come from a, a time or a generation where you were judged by your actions, not your motivation, like I said, in the banality of true theory or something like that. And yes, of course, there is, uh, words are magic and magic can affect people's consciousness, as many of you in the occult know. But ultimately, I think it comes down to the emotions and what's behind what people say online or in real life. And most of what people say are driven, yes, by emotions, by uh, programming, by a whole bunch of stuff that's uh, behind of what they say. Uh, as I keep saying here, most of what we do is not conscious, is driven by unconscious forces and by outside forces that have uh, created or influenced the persona that we are. At the end of the day, I would say that uh, whenever you say something or you post something or you give your opinion, if it's driven by emotions, well, the Gnostics would say you've been possessed by archons. And this is nothing radical. The Gnostics came from a time of uh, where the Stoics and the Middle Platonics and others knew that uh, if you're driven by your emotions, then your emotions are controlling you. Or, or should I say, you have to be the master of your emotions or you have to be disattached from your emotions when doing anything important in life. Emotions are just signposts to uh, lead you somewhere that you have to understand or a greater insight. Uh, whenever I and of course, I'm not perfect. God knows I want to get triggered and irate when I'm scrolling down social media, hear somebody say something on the internets or on TV. But at the end of the day, I feel if I'm going to express something, it has to be done with virtue. It has to be done with compassion. And it has to be done with as much understanding of the other person or the other group as possible. And uh, it's a way of just dealing with things in complete freedom. I liked uh, what Mitch Horowitz said in a past Finding Hermes, uh, where he said that uh, we should not just have the golden rule, but we should have the platinum rule. Don't treat others or treat others as you would like to be treated, but also think of others as you would like to be thought of. And that means, again, you're seeing the, the entire picture of that person. And just as you try to see your entire picture when you're doing things and so forth. So the platinum rule is always a, an interesting tool and I'm certainly highly advise it in these days of, again, divide and conquer, uh, 
triggering cancel culture and this uh, cultural revolution we live in today. I think uh, I believe in the free exchange of ideas. I believe in freedom of speech. And I cherish everybody who comes on Finding Hermes or Aeon Byte who wants to express myself, who wants to express themselves. Uh, that's what I've always envisioned the virtual Alexandria to be. Another thing I wanted to mention, too, is the idea of taking meds. Now, I, I want to be clear, I have nothing against taking meds. Uh, the problem I feel, and I was, uh, I fell into that trap, is thinking that the med is the red pill. And it kind of is the red pill, but the red pill is not the total solution, as you see in the Matrix. Uh, I got myself in the trap of thinking the med would uh, solve all my problems, and uh, that made me neglect other parts of my life. It made me neglect my spiritual practices, my physical well-being, my uh, uh, tuning my interpersonal relationships, and so forth. And what happened is things got worse, and I asked for more meds, and before I knew it, I was in this spiral of numbness and... Uh, underlying pain i'm glad it's been what god at least seven years since i've been on meds so i would advise yes if meds are a good stopgap they're a good temporary solution or they're simply one part of a whole holistic solution to finding out who you are and understanding how to deal with whatever trauma or pain or or simply to cope with the world and that's my advice with meds so be careful and keep that in mind if you can again have a great case study on what can go wrong in this situation Another part of uh, Steve's interview reminded me of the movie Serenity, Josh Whedon's movie based on the TV show Firefly. And in that film, uh, the plot is about this uh, colony of people that end up really at the edges of the empire in this movie. Obviously, it's hard to control people that are so far away in the galaxy, so the Empire comes up with this great plan to uh, to uh, infect the people with uh, doses of this uh, gas that will basically take away their aggressiveness and edge. Uh, they pump it through uh, the, 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 the air ducts, they pump it in their offices, in their homes, and it does work. This colony of people end up being very peaceful. But it eventually backfires because without uh, any sort of passion or edge, uh, basically being numbed like somebody might be numbed with meds, they literally just lose their will to live. Uh, they sit there and the population stops eating, stops moving, and they just literally die in their places uh, when the protagonists go to that planet they see these zombified remains of people in front of their screens uh, sitting in their homes and so forth and uh, that's uh, the that's a great cover-up for the empire so be careful with that and yeah also reminds me of uh, roger waters album amused to death where these aliens come down to earth and they find the skeletal remains of humanity 
all in front of, well, TVs and screens across the world. And the aliens assume these people, well, they got too caught up in the bread and circuses, mainly the circuses part, the magic, the dark magic worked and it worked too well from the powers that be and humanity just died amused to death. So between uh, being amused to death and divide and conquer, find your voice, find out who you are, and connect with others in the most imp- with the most empathy, understanding, and uh, always seeing that nothing is what it seems, and there's a lot more to the narrative than you know with each person out there you interact with, uh, regardless of if it's a guest here, another podcast, on social media, or at your job. There's so much more. And that's it. Um, no other takeaways, but I like what Steve said about uh, be patient with your dreams. Uh, you're on an incredible journey, a journey that might be taking, well, even more than this lifetime, before you were born, after you were born. But you are on your way, and they will happen if you continue with focus, with understanding, with patience, and certainly with love. And that's it. I hope you've enjoyed our latest episode of Finding Hermes. I hope uh, the God of the mind is there with you and you are ready to walk through another door. That you put your cards on the table to show the world who you really are because you are amazing. And you become transparent to the transcendent. Thank you very much. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.